Good morning, church family. I pray that you're doing well this morning and pray that you have hearts that are not only tuned to sing God's praises, but to hear his word. Uh, let's pray together as we turn to the word. Father, we pray now that you would do the speaking, that your word would come through the vessel clean, and that it would, Lord, not only enter the ear, but enter the heart. We pray that we would hear you and believe on you and respond in obedience to your word. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of your glory and your gospel, we pray. Shape us into the likeness of Christ this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we began our new series um, called Bless the Block. We plan in this series to walk slowly through Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 9. And we're going to walk slowly through that text as a kind of blueprint for our life as exiles in the world and in our community. And we're going to look to that blueprint as God's divine instruction for exiles in how to flourish as a community, as an exile community, and how to bless the, the community of exile in which we live. We began the series last week by stressing the importance of understanding that basic fact, that we are indeed, according to Peter, 1 Peter 1, 1, God's elect exiles. We're his chosen exiles, and, and that's meant to shape how we think about ourselves and how we live. A simple definition of exile is someone who lives where they would rather not live. That can happen either by choice or by force, but an exile is someone who is pushed away from their own kind of native community and to live in another community across culture, across language, across class, across a lot of natural barriers, um, and, and who has to plant their life in that foreign land, so to speak. And as we pointed out last week, uh, we could be exiles not only in a spiritual sense as Christians, all Christians are exiles according to the Bible, but we can also be exiles in other ways too. So we can have sort of multiple exile experiences as immigrants and Christians, as Christians and African Americans and so on. So exile is this full-time experience of being a stranger in a strange land. Uh, T. Scott Daniels captures this experience well when he writes, people who live in exile feel displaced. They feel like resident aliens. They feel like a people who have to live counterculturally. This sense of out of placeness is actually the way disciples of Jesus ought to feel. Now, if this is how we ought to feel, then it means we should embrace a life of exile. We should embrace being God's elect exiles. But there's a challenge when you think about it, isn't it? When we're truly experiencing exile, it hurts. It, it unsettles. It leaves us shaken and sometimes broken. Exile is hard. And this kind of dislocation is, is truly traumatizing and, and sometimes cataclysmic. The whole world is turned upside down. And when that happens, uh, we, we can face the temptation uh, to say, God has failed us. Or to ask, has God forsaken us? And, and then we can, we can sort of jump over to then, well, we should just, we should just give up. 
or we need to do our own thing. I mean, anybody ever responded to disappointment and hardship that way? Or, or perhaps in the midst of hardship that comes from exile, you, you've heard sneaking up in your heart a question something like this. What kind of God sends their own people, his own people, into exile? What kind of God sends his own people into exile? Now, if we answer that question the wrong way, then our time of exile actually gets harder. It actually gets worse. But if we answer it, answer it correctly, then we can endure the hardships of exile uh, in a way that leads us to experience the rich grace of God, the blessing of God, even through exile itself. So we want to ask that question this morning. What kind of God sends his own people into exile? And we want to try and answer it biblically from our text this morning in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 9. If you're taking notes, uh, there are three things there we want to see about God, this kind of God. That God is the kind of God who still speaks. God is the kind of God who still saves. And God is the kind of God who still sins. And this is the kind of God that we should worship. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. What kind of God sends his own people into exile? Well, number one, the kind of God who still speaks. And sometimes God's people are hard-headed, aren't we? God tells us something, but we go our own way. We do our own thing. Now, the Bible's word for that, going your own way, contrary to what God said, is sin. And all of us have sinned. All people everywhere have sinned. And, and all Christians uh, have sin and do sin. We, we don't always like to obey God and to do what God says. Consider the background to this text. Consider how it is that Israel wound up in exile. Jeremiah 25, verses 3 to 9, which was read earlier. It tells us that the fundamental reason God sent Israel into exile was because for 23 years, they refused to listen to God. You see that in Jeremiah 25, 3 and 4. They refused to repent, verse 5. They, they practiced evil, in verse 5. They worshipped idols, in verse 6. And that's how they provoked God to anger. And that's how, in verse 7, verses 8 and 9, excuse me, they, they basically destroyed themselves. That's the background. Over two decades of ignoring the voice of God. Now, how long could someone ignore you before you start ignoring them? It wouldn't take 23 years, would it? Some of us start canceling people after 23 seconds. 
Can you imagine ignoring God for 23 years? And I imagine that people watching this, some of you watching this, you have been ignoring God that long. You've heard God calling you, or you've heard God speaking to you about something, and you've gone your own way. And some of us have ignored God for so long that we have began to convince ourselves that God is no longer speaking to us. That's false. God is always speaking. He still speaks. Notice now verse 4. It begins this way. Thus says the Lord. There's a lot of theology in that phrase. There's a lot of theology packed into that common phrase. Uh, first of all, thus says the Lord is proof that God is God. God is the only deity who actually speaks. It is the true God's ability to speak that separates him from the false gods. Look with me at Psalm 135. Beginning in verse 15, the psalmist writes there, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. See, beloved, idols, false gods, are deaf, dumb, and blind. And so are the people who worship them. We become what we worship. If we worship idols, false gods who cannot speak, who cannot hear, who cannot see, who have no breath in them, they are not alive, they're not real, then, then we become just like them. And here's the truth. Before we were believers in Jesus Christ, whatever religion we were worshiping or whether we were not of any religion in particular, before we became followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us were worshiping uh, mute idols. That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, You know that when you were pagans, that's unbelievers, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. So however you were led, whatever ways in which you were worshiping, whether you made them up yourself or followed some other world religion, you were in fact following idols, false gods who were mute, who could not speak. It is only the one true and living God who has the ability to speak. And he's still speaking. But notice a little bit more theology in that phrase. Thus says the Lord is also proof that God will be heard by his people. God will not be ignored. He's patient, but he's not a pushover. God will have our attention and he will have our obedience. That's why in, in our exile, God is still speaking to us. Thus says the Lord is a phrase commonly used by the prophets as a way of calling the people to pay attention that God is now speaking. Thus says the Lord announces God's authority. It teaches that God is the God who commands. If you look again at, at Jeremiah 29 verses 49, you notice that every sentence, every phrase begins with an active verb. It begins with a command, build, live, plant, Eat, take, have, give, bear, multiply, do not decrease, seek, pray. These are not merely nice ideas or suggestions. These are divine commands. When God speaks to command, he expects to be obeyed. The Lord isn't having a casual conversation with us with, with no obligations. He's a father instructing his children. 
He's a king giving commands to his subjects. We are meant to pay attention and to obey. When I was a kid in grade school a long time ago, we used to play a game called Simon Says. Anybody ever play that game? The teacher or the leader would be giving instructions to the group uh, and you, you have to listen for what Simon says. Whenever the instruction began with Simon says, touch your nose, then you had to touch your nose or else you were out. Simon says, pat your head, you had to pat your head or else you were out. Um, but if the instruction was just simply touch your nose, then you weren't supposed to do it. You weren't supposed to obey. You're supposed to learn to listen for Simon's voice and do what Simon says. Now, I, I never figured out who Simon was or why he had so much pull in elementary school. But I do know growing up, someone whose word was greater than Simon's. And if in my house you wanted to get something done, you would begin the sentence this way. Mama said. And whatever Mama said, that was meant to be done as soon as you heard Mama said. Now in the Bible, there's someone greater than Mama. It's Father. It's God our Father. God the Father has the same expectation that when we hear, thus saith the Lord, like we're playing Simon Says or like our mom in our home has spoken to us, we are meant to spring into obedient action. See, as Christians, we're playing a, a real life version, not of Simon Says, but of Sovereign Says. Our Sovereign God speaks and he's still speaking. One more thing, this phrase, thus says the Lord shows us that God is not like so many people today who are eager to cancel other people. God is not petty. We give him a, show, a cold shoulder, he sends us a warm word. That's what kind of God he is. So even though Israel ignored him 23 years, God is still speaking to them. Thus says the Lord, drips with God's steadfast grace and kindness. He's a gracious God. In our exile, God speaks to us through his word. And he is still speaking. The word is alive and is still coming to us. But don't, don't miss this. Don't miss this. God will send us into exile to clear up our hearing. Exile removes the earwax. Exile is an act of grace to people who have a hard time listening. So we can think exile is what makes it difficult to hear God. We, in our suffering, our pain, we're not home. God's not, God's not talking to us. God's not speaking to us. But the truth is, it is exile that helps us hear. Because it removes us from the distractions. It removes us from the comforts of life that, that makes our hearing dull. The Lord will make us foreigners in a foreign land among a people speaking a foreign tongue so that the only voice we recognize is His. That's how important it is that God has our undivided attention and our immediate, immediate obedience. We are meant to listen to and to obey God, and it is by His grace that He is still speaking to us, and it's by His word that the exile is, is fed and led as God would have them to be. So how do we apply this fact that God still speaks to us in our exile experience? Well, sometimes the exile experience is a bewildering experience. It's, it's difficult to live cross-culturally. It's hard to be aliens in a foreign land. 
culture shock keeps us disoriented. And when the needle on the compass is spinning around and around, the north star of God's voice is what is meant to direct us and to guide us. To have a God who speaks means we are never without divine counsel. We are never without a word from the Lord. It's, it's in his book. And he is always there to guide us into truth and righteousness. To know our way during exile, all we need to do is keep coming to the book. Keep hearing what thus says the Lord. That's where God gets our attention. That's where he teaches us to obey. And that's where we may hear his voice any time of day, any season of the year, any place is in his word. What kind of God sends his own people into exile? The kind of God who still speaks in exile. But there's a second thing we should see. He's also the kind of God who still saves. The second phrase in verse 4 tells us what, what, what God is like to the exile when it says that God is the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Jeremiah sandwiches together two titles there. These titles reveal both God's power and God's covenant love. The Lord of hosts might be translated Lord Sabaoth or Lord Almighty. The word host is a military term. It, it refers to an army that is organized uh, in its ranks and in its divisions. So now the, the Lord of hosts is a reference to God as the, the commander of all the armies of heaven, organized in their ranks and their divisions, prepared for war. God is the commander-in-chief of all those angels and saints that make up his army. And that title, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, is meant to remind the exile of how powerful God is. One commentator says, the phrase Lord of hosts points to God's universal dominion over the whole universe. That's not, a, that's not a inch of ground anywhere where God does not rule omnipotently. Exile then becomes the condition in which we see God's true strength. This title, Lord of Hosts, is the name uh, for God that addresses us exiles in our weakness. Uh, a defeated people need an omnipotent God. If they're going to be saved from their enemies, if they're going to be saved from exile, they need a God with power. And that title announces that that precisely is who God is, the God of all power, the Lord of hosts. And throughout the Bible, when God's people were most vulnerable, then God's messengers, whether they be angels or others, they showed up beneath that title, beneath that title of power. So when Joshua began to conquer the promised land in Joshua chapter 5, you may remember he saw that angel and he was awed by that angel and asked the question, whose side you on? And the angel said, neither. He says, I'm a commander of the armies of the Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth, showing up to guarantee victory for Israel. Or Israel when they destroyed the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. Or David, when he came out to face Goliath, he came out in the name of the Lord of hosts in 1 Samuel 17. David, when he returned the ark from the Philistines, they celebrated in 2 Samuel 6 and praised the Lord of hosts. 
And when God promised to establish David's throne forever, God introduced himself as the Lord of hosts. See, the first question the exile confronts is, is, is the question, is God with us or has God forsaken us? The exile is forced to ask, will God save us? We've been defeated by our enemies. Are, are we just left to be defeated? Where is God? Will he save us? And when we wonder if our enemies will destroy us, God speaks to remind us that he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, the commander of the armies of heaven. And we're meant to be comforted by his power. This is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 46, verse 7, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still and know that I am God, verse 10. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. But to the exile, God is not just a warrior. For the exile, God is love. That's what we infer from the title, the second title, the God of Israel. That's, that's God's covenant name. God is, God is, that's another word for relationship. Covenant is another word for relationship. Israel was in a covenant relationship with God. God had promised to be their God and had promised that they would be his people. And in that special relationship, they were meant to serve God in a certain way. And God was, was pledging himself to care for them in a certain way. It's like reminding Israel of his marriage vows with him. Now, when an army destroys your country and drags you into captivity, again, the natural question is, does God really and truly love us? Or has God forsaken us? And the phrase, the God of Israel, reminds these exiles, yes, God still loves you. God is still for you. God has not forsaken you. His love is steadfast. Nothing will separate you from his love. Their relationship is intact. Uh, and, and the reason their relationship is intact is because the God who promised cannot lie. He does not break his word. He took them as his people and he will never forsake them. He loves them with an everlasting love. And because of his great love for them, he will save them. He will rescue them. What kind of God sends his own people into exile? Well, the kind of God who actually still saves and has power to save, who isn't himself threatened by exile. And that's the God that we serve. And beloved, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, the most vital thing for you to do is to come into a covenant relationship with God. We're thinking here about God's old covenant with Israel. Well, the Bible teaches us now that there is a new covenant. You don't have to be Jewish to be saved by God. That's, that's not how God saves anyway. Actually, the Bible says there's a new covenant established through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for our sins, when he was raised from the grave three days later for justification, Jesus himself taught in Matthew chapter 26 that he was establishing a new covenant in which our sins would be forgiven, in which his righteousness would become ours, in which we would have a relationship with God for all time, forgiven of our sins, 
made righteous, reconciled to God, adopted into his family, and brought into this covenant relationship of love. Nothing more important than you enter this covenant relationship with God today. And you do that by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus. And you do that with the knowledge and the hope that God still saves. And he will save you from your exiles, from exile in hell and exile in this world. And he will bring you back into your homeland, the true homeland, which is heaven, which is in his presence. Nothing more important than you do that. And if you do that, let us know so we can encourage you and pray for you. And Christian, uh, there are some things that we have to ask ourselves when we think about our own exile and we think about this God who has sent us into exile and what he's like. And we think about the reality that he is still saving. So when we face our exile, do we look to our powerful God to be our protector and comforter and to enjoy his love? Do we believe the Lord of hosts is with us? That he really is present with us in our exile here in Southeast D.C., our own particular neighborhood and, and mission field? Or, or does faithfulness, excuse me, faithlessness cling to our hearts? Does unbelief cling to our minds and tempt us to doubt God? Or are we in greater awe of the power of man and devils than we are in greater awe of the power of God, the Lord of hosts? See, this is who our God is. He is all-powerful, and he loves us. And in our exile, when so much is foreign and alien and hard, we've got to keep our eyes on who our God is. See him and love him. Serve him faithfulness. And Christian, this means we must interpret our exile experience through these truths about God. Our God is mighty and he does love us. That's why we must be confident that he will save us. He will deliver us. Satan will whisper the opposite. Suffering will tempt us to doubt. But the truth is that the same God who sent us into exile is fighting our battles. And his banner over us is love. We're going to see difficult days as an exiled people. No way around that in a fallen world. Hard things are bound to happen. Some of those things will tempt us to think hard thoughts about God himself. So we need to resolve right now to remember that the God who sends us into exile is the same God who has power to protect us, who loves us with a covenant love, and who will deliver us in his own timing. So everything we do must be done in, the, in God's strength and in dependence on his love. Build houses, plant gardens, start families, pray for the city, reject false teaching. All those things in Jeremiah 29 verses 4 to 9, all of that must come as we live by faith in the Lord, the covenant-keeping God who has saved us. What kind of God sends his own people into exile? The God who still speaks and the God who still saves. Number three. He is the God who still sins. He still speaks. He still saves. Finally, he still sins. Look at the last part of verse 4. Who sent all the exiles into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Exiles are sent people. That's why as elect exiles, we should live with a sense of sentness. We live in our neighborhoods because 
God has sent us here. Israel is not in Babylon because Babylon conquered them. They're not in Babylon because they had some failed military strategy. They are there most fundamentally because their God sent them there. And we are where we are most fundamentally not because housing is cheaper in this section of the city. We are here not because we are stuck in the neighborhood. We're not here because we have some um, sort of, um, we, we've been defeated in some way by gentrification or some other kind of set of policies and things. Those things are real, just like Babylon conquering Israel is real. But we're here theologically and most fundamentally because God is ascending God. He sent us here. To be in exile is to be sent. And we need to live with a certain kind of sentness. And, 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 and really, to be in exile, exile is just another word for missionary. Because we've been sent with a purpose. Notice verse 7. We are to seek the welfare of the city where God has sent us into exile. So, so exile becomes another word for missionary. Every biblical Christian is a missionary because every biblical Christian is an elect exile left in the world for the blessing of their neighbors. I'm of the opinion that if the Christian church were discipled into an exilic identity and lifestyle, we wouldn't have any problems raising up people to go to the mission field. We would be forming people who understand themselves already to be sent ones, exiles in the whole world. And wherever they live, they would be living with the purpose of blessing others, blessing their neighbors, both materially but spiritually in the gospel as well. I think maybe the main challenge to getting people on the mission field is that we don't really think we're exiles. We think we should choose where we live. We think we should choose where we should go. Um, we think that that's our freedom. But not if God is your God. Because God is the God who sends. Sometimes to places we wouldn't want to go. But notice now, the fact that God is the one who sent them into exile is also evidence that God is the one who is in control of their exile. He's in control of their present. He's in control of their future. This means our exile is not random and out of control. Our time as wanderers and pilgrims and sojourners is a matter of divine planning. Notice verse 10, Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, bring them back to Jerusalem, bring them back home. You see, God announced the length of their exile ahead of time. God was in control of the entire period. Exile never lasts a day longer or ends a day shorter than God himself intends and appoints. The Lord is, is sovereignly ruling over everything that happens to us, and he does it for our good. And not only our good, but he does it for the welfare of the city where we live out our exile. And God keeps his word. Exactly 70 years later, the Lord under King Cyrus uh, of Persia, a pagan king, the Lord returned his people back to the land just as he promised 70 years to the day. You can read all about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So beloved, 
Never think that when you're following Jesus and you start to feel like the exile is too hard or too long, never think that God is somehow out of control. He isn't. He never is. He sent you. He has appointed the time of your sojourn. He's appointed the place of your sojourn. And whatever that sojourn begins to look like, he is in control. He sends us, he controls our sending, and he sends us to give us a hope. Notice verse 11 of Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, if you've got that on a t-shirt, you got that on a coffee mug, you got that on some, some chotsky in your house, I want you to get a little index card. I want you to get a piece of paper. I'll make it fancy if you want to, but, but I want you to write these words and attach it to that because I am in exile. Because I am in exile. This occurs in the context of God sending his people into exile. This is not some prosperity verse. This is not just some promise that we get to pluck out of the air and say, oh, for I know the plans he has for me. No, no, no. This belongs uniquely and specifically to Israel in their exile. And if we're going to apply it to our day, we have to apply it to ourselves as an exile community sent by God to live in a place where we would rather not be for the blessing of those people and ourselves. But notice what he says. He's doing this to give them a future and a hope. Now peep this. God is not as preoccupied with our present as we are. God is all seeing. God has an eye on our present, yes, but he also has an eye on our future. And, and, and that makes him different from us. See, we want everything now. And if we don't get everything we want now, then we all disgruntled and impatient and we are bitter and we complain. We, we think the future is going to be terrible. But our ways are not God's ways. His ways are higher than ours. His ways are better than ours. His thoughts are better than ours, and he has a thought for our future, for our welfare, for our hope and happiness. That's what he's planned for us. You see that word there? For I know the plans I have for you. You realize that God has plans for his exiled people? They are plans to do them good and not harm. And he's going to execute his plans. And he's going to bring us into the fullness of the blessing that he has prepared for us and purchased for us in Christ. Hallelujah. For, for Israel, this meant returning to the promised land. But for the exiled Christian church today, God has something far better, the Bible tells us. The promised land in the Bible was really just a temporary commercial. It was a sort of earthly symbol of a spiritual reality, of a spiritual future. It was a commercial for our real home. Jesus says in John chapter 14 that he has gone to the Father to prepare a place for us. And then he's going to come again and gather us and take us to that place. That's a text that's really teaching us that while this earth is not our home, and this whole earth is really a, a place of exile for the Christian, that's the text that's telling us that our exile won't last forever, that our Savior is going to come again, and he's going to take us into the land, the glorious, eternal, heavenly land that God has prepared for us. 
And what we'll see there, what we experience there, what we'll receive there, cannot be described with words. Well, there we will see and behold His glory. There we will be satisfied. There we will have pleasure forevermore. There on His right hand, on His left hand, is all that is good. There, there will be no more sin or death. There will be no more sickness or disease. There, there will be no unrighteousness, no evil, only righteousness, only light, immortality, and abundant life forever. They wanted to go back to Jerusalem, an earthly city. We're going to a city whose builder and maker is God, with unshakable foundations that will never be conquered, that forever will end our exile. And inside is our God, our Savior, who is our soul's delight. At a day and an hour when no man knows, Jesus will come again to bring us home. Our exile will be over. Our happiness, our final and full happiness will be begun and never ending. We look forward to that city and being with the one who has purchased us. And we live our exile focused on this God who, yes, has sent us into exile, but also is sending us to glory. So, so we have to endure our exile, not focused on the exile itself, not limited to the things that are happening in our pilgrimage. We have to sort of live through the exile, looking out and looking up to what's coming, what's being sent to us in the way of a new home. We have to look up to the one who has sent us, who has plans for us. That's who God is to the exile. He's the one who speaks. He's the one who saves. He's the one who sins. And he's always with us and always working things out for his glory. So beloved, as we think about turning now to focus on the things that we are instructed to do in verses five to nine, I want us to keep verse four with us, remembering who God is. And to do verses 5 and 9, worshiping this God. This God who has sent us into exile, yes, but who still speaks to us, who still saves, and who still sins. Let's glorify him together as we live out this vision. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that you speak, you save, and you sin. And together right now, Lord, along with the prophet Isaiah, we, we turn to you in faith and we say, here I am, Lord, send me. And we confess any hesitation, we confess any trembling and doubt that would make us want to shrink back away from that. We, we can hear how our hearts sometimes speak against our confession. So we're saying, here I am, Lord, send me. And our hearts will say, I hope you don't send me there. I hope you don't do it now. I really rather not. Oh Lord, crucify that. Help us to die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. Help us to pray now again in faith. Here I am, Lord, send me. You're the God who sends. You're the God who speaks. Speak to us and let us know where we should go. And you're the God who saves. Gives a, give us confidence in your power and your saving love, we pray. 
in Jesus' name.